more than the warm, fuzzy feelings you experience during the honeymoon phase. It's a journey through good times and bad, through seasons when you've got it all figured out and when nothing makes sense. God chose your spouse for you and you alone to walk through life with, to strengthen your spiritual life with, and to experience the highs and lows together with God at the center leading the way. Marriage is a precious gift. It's meant to be enjoyed, cherished, and protected. For when we experience marriage the way God intended, we discover that the honeymoon experience can last a lifetime. C.F. Cozine and his wife Leela have been married now, it's 60 to 65 years. And for the last 50 something years, CF has given her the exact same Valentine's card every single year. It's a picture of a queen on the outside, a, a plastic heart. Inside it says, you're the queen of my heart, the joy of my life, a sweetheart and a friend, and a wonderful wife. And every year, he gives her this card. The next day after he gives it to her, he takes it back and puts it in his, in his desk. <laughs> and he gives her the same card the next year. He gives her a different gift, and she loves it. She wants this card. This card now has become the symbol of an endearing love and an enduring love for over half a century on Valentine's Day. Four times in Genesis chapter 1, God created something, and when He finished creating it, He said, and it is good. But when He created Adam, He said, it is not good. And He wasn't talking about Adam. He was talking about Adam's condition, that Adam was alone. And so He created Eve, and He brought Eve to her, and they became the very first marriage. Over the next four weeks, I want us to have a series on marriage, four-part series in which uh, we are talking about what happens after the honeymoon. And if you are not married and you want to know more about how you can prepare for marriage, if you are a newly wed couple, if you've been married for 60-something years, wherever you are in the spectrum, you can learn from what we're talking about over the next four weeks. And Pastor Libin and I are going to be doing it together. I'll be teaching too. He'll be teaching too. We'll get different perspectives as we look in to the Word of God together. And this morning, I want to talk to you about what God's original design for marriage was all about. And it starts in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, and notice what he says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, exclamation point, he exclaimed, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. 
She'll be called woman because she was taken from the man. That phrase, at last, is a Hebrew exclamation point. It's like, wow. It's like amazing, yay, God, hot dog. It is a, an exclamation point. She is who I always wanted. Now, the first thing that I want to say to you as we start this marriage series is this very point. The greatest gift that you can give to your spouse is to love God and put Him first. The greatest gift is to love God and put Him first. And some of you are already thinking to yourself, That's, I don't believe that. I think the greatest gift you can give to your spouse is to put her first or him first. But actually, that might cause the doom of your marriage. So why is it? Why is it that the greatest gift I can give to my spouse is to love God and put Him first in my life? Because if you love God and you put Him first in your life, you will do whatever He tells you to do. Sometimes you won't feel it. Sometimes you won't mean it. Sometimes you'll even argue with it, but you will do what God tells you to do. Because you love him. Jesus said this in John 15, 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you'll do whatever I ask you to do. And the Bible teaches us that God has said to us that we are to love our spouse and we are to honor and be respectful to our spouse no matter what. You see, love is not a feeling. There are times Many times, many, many, many times, we have a feeling that is connected, but not every time. Love is not a feeling. Love is a decision. Love is an action. It is a verb. And God says, I want you to treat your spouse in a loving and a respectful way. Over the last year and a half, two years, I've been amazed. I have heard four nationally known people who've said almost the same sentence, and I think, okay, they must be hearing each other, and now they're repeating it, and they're acting like it's true. The sentence they've said, the statement they've said is this, marriage wasn't invented until the Middle Ages. And the first time I heard it, I thought, boy, that is, what is wrong with that person? That's not true. But now I've heard it four times, so obviously it's making its round somewhere, and people are believing it, but that is nuts. That is crazy. The first marriage that ever happened was between Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. But I'm going to tell you, you can go to any civilization, go to any civilization, and archaeological works, anyone, these civilizations that archaeology has sort of uncovered, and they have uncovered evidences of the sense of marriage. It may not look like ours. It may, it may just be the husband and, or the man and the woman standing up in front of a group, and you are married, or I take this woman kind of thing. And it might just be only for a moment, or it might be elaborate like our weddings today, but there has been evidence of marriage all the way back as far as archaeology can take civilizations. So why in the world would somebody say such a ridiculous thing that marriage was invented 
in the Middle Ages, I think somebody got something screwed up somewhere. And it might be, and I'm not even saying this is true. I'm not even saying this is accurate. But it might be that what their meaning is that in the Middle Ages, maybe government acknowledged or got involved in the wedding process, but marriage was created by God. There is another true statement that I want you to hear, and it's this. The Bible was the first in recorded history to command men to be loving and respectful toward their wives. It was the Bible. You see, in civilizations all over the world, they they have treated women as property, wives as property, and they can be as disrespectful and mean as they can possibly be, and there was nothing that women could do about it. But the Bible changed that. In Christianity, God told men, don't you dare mistreat your wife, because if you do, I will not answer your prayers. You say, where do you find that? It's found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Now stop for a moment. This was written in first century Roman Empire in which they were notorious for treating their wives horribly. And now these guys have come to faith in Christ. These these Roman citizens have come to faith in Christ. And now that they've come to faith in Christ, they're hearing something that would have been totally foreign from their hearts in the same way you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She is your equal partner. That would have been what? She is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. You treat her as you should so that your prayers will not be hindered. What God is saying is you don't treat your wife the way she's supposed to be treated. God will not listen to your prayers. And ladies, this is why you want to get your husband in church every chance you can. You want him hearing the Word of God. You want him loving God. You want him to put God first. Because if he puts God first, he will obey what God says in how to treat you. Do I hear any amens anywhere? Yes, I'm hearing amens. In the same way, men. The same Bible says to your wife, you treat your your husband in in a loving way and a respectful way. You want want to get your wives in church as often as you can and to hear the Word of God and to, to obey God and to love God and to put God first in her life. Do I hear any amens in the room? Yes, but they're a little bit moderated, I'm hearing. They're a little bit moderated, but you're saying amen really loud in your heart. This is why I'm saying this, that the greatest, the greatest gift you can give your spouse is to love God and put Him first in your life because it will change the trajectory of your marriage. So here's the question. Why did God make marriage? Well, the goal of marriage is the completion of each other. And this is what he is telling us in verse 18. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And this is what he says. I will make Adam 
a helper suitable for him. First title he gives to Eve is a helper. Now, that is not a great word in the English language, but remember, he gave it in the Hebrew language, not the English language. In the, in the English language, the dictionary translates helper as a relatively unskilled worker who assists a skilled worker, usually by manual labor. That is not a good definition here. But in the Bible... In the Old Testament especially, there are several times in which it is said that God is my helper, and it's the exact same Hebrew word. For instance, Psalm 33, verse 20, the Lord God is my helper. Now, the word helper in the Hebrew language is not someone who is subservient, but someone who helps to complete God made us inadequate, incomplete, without each other. And here's what I want to say. Every single person on both campuses, every single one of us, every single one of us in these two rooms are trying to overcome something. Every one of us. And for some, it's many things. We're trying to overcome something. It is part of what life is about. It's part of what life means. It's not all that life means, but part of what life means is there are things about us that we're trying to overcome. And for some of these things that we're trying to overcome, we need someone who will walk alongside of us and who will help us. The idea of marriage is to provide the missing pieces from the puzzle of life. The man and the woman complete each other to together form a beautiful picture of what God intended marriage to produce. We need each other. Now, this is a good moment to stop for just a moment and just make this statement. Biblical marriage, biblical marriage is one man married to one woman committed to each other for life. That is biblical marriage. It is not a man with another man. It's not a woman with another woman. That is not biblical marriage. And it is also not a man with several wives. And you say, but wait a minute. I see in the Old Testament, there are some of the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament that have multiple wives. But if you will read their stories, it never worked out. It never worked out. And this is why God says it is to be one man and one woman committed to each other for life. Not everyone is intended to marry. Jesus said this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, that some are to abstain from marriage for the kingdom's sake. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29, that it is better for a person to stay single if they're going to sell out their heart and life to Christ so that that person's attention can be directed toward him. And you say, well, I, okay, I'm not getting this now. If marriage is for the purpose of completing and I don't... I don't marry someone, how do I be completed? And there is a sense in, the, in God's Word that God brings the completion. 
Not everybody's intended to be married. And so, what? but marriage is accepted by God. It is good and approved by God. So God has a will. Seek his will. And follow what he says. Matthew Henry says it this way. When God made woman, he did not take her from a man's head to rule over him, nor from his feet to be trampled on by him but from his side to be his equal, from under his arm to be protected, from near his heart to be loved. So what does it mean for a man and a woman to complete each other? To complete each other means that where one is weak, the other is strong. And where the other lacks, the first supplies the need. Have you noticed that opposites tend to marry? If you haven't noticed that, just be married a little bit longer because it's coming. <laughs> if you just think about it, the way, the way it happens, opposites tend to marry. It won't surprise anybody that Kathy has much better people skills than I do. It won't surprise anybody. She, she is so much more affirming. She is so much more understanding. And the truth is, where she found me, I was so way down. She has brought me up several notches. And I thank God for her. I would not be the pastor I am today without her. She has strengths where I do not. And this is the whole idea of marriage is that, is that one has strengths where the other has weaknesses, the other has strengths where the other has weaknesses, so that we, we complement each other, and that we help each other, and that we build each other up. And i got to tell you, there's a day I'm looking at her, and I'm seeing the people skills she has, and I'm realizing that I don't have the level that she has. I said to myself, if I was smart, I would be watching her and trying to emulate her. And, and, and that's what I've been doing. I've been watching how she does it, learning from her, and she has brought me up a little ways. There's a whole lot more to go, but we got more time. And she keeps building into my life. This is what marriage is supposed to to be about. But you know what can happen in marriage? What can happen in marriage is that somebody sees that the other person has strengths or they have weaknesses and they, they in their pride, I don't want anything to do with that. And they reject that person with their strengths or they mock those strengths. The person who does that is not thinking. God brings us together and opposites attract because it makes us stronger in the end. Part of the marriage process is to so humble ourselves that we can say, I need the strengths that you possess. I cannot be who I need to be and what I need to be without you. It doesn't mean that you don't agree on anything. You agree on a lot of things. Kathy and I agree on so many things. We, we see life so similar to each other. We, we have the same opinions about things. But there are things that she has I don't have, and she's growing in me. And hopefully, I got something that I can build into her. 
And this is what marriage is about. How do we reach then this whole intimacy of completion? Well, this is what he teaches us in the next two verses. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife? And they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Four things that he tells us in these two verses. And the first one is this. Leave your parents. Leave your parents. Charles Swindoll is one of my great heroes in the faith. I love the guy. He, he, is, he has said so much truth to my heart over the years. And he writes this. In order for the new relationship between bride and groom to, to flourish... And their home to begin correctly, the cord must be cut with the parents. That doesn't mean abandoning your parents or ignoring or mistreating or cutting them off from all contact with them. Leave father and mother means to sever the tight, emotionally dependent strings that once provided security and protection, financial assistance, and physical needs. All or any of those ties, if brought over into a marriage, will hinder the bond of marriage from sealing. So God mentions this first, even before he talks about cleaving to each other. As strong as the parent-child bond is, the husband-wife is to be stronger. So what is he saying? Your relationship with your parents has been strong. It's been the strongest relationship that you had in your life. But when you get married, your relationship with your spouse is to be the strongest relationship of your life. There needs to be a sense of severing or cutting off, not, not, uh, not of time with them, I'm not talking about that, but a sense of deeper loyalty to your spouse, deeper relationship with your spouse. And if you don't do it, if you keep those ties with your parents the way it, it was, it will actually damage your marriage in the long run. One of the great gifts that Kathy's parents gave to us and my parents gave to us is that they understood this truth. And when we got married, there was this separation that was healthy that happened. They, I mean, they never micromanaged our, our marriage. They never micromanaged our parenting. They didn't try to interfere. You know what? If you're going to be married, you need to act like this. Or if, you, if you're going to raise kids, you need to raise kids the way I did it. There was none of that. And our bond with our parents has always been strong and loving and healthy, but with each other far stronger. And that's what God intended. We gave the same gift to our two sons because we knew this had to be. You know what? Nobody ever talks about this. I mean, you never hear this, but the truth is one of the biggest reasons for divorce may not be the biggest, but it's one of the top. 
One of the biggest reasons of divorce is because of parents and in-laws interfering in the marriage. And they don't mean to injure the marriage, but they do it. And if you truly love your kids, you will let them go. You still have love them. You are still caring for them. If they, they can still come to you for advice, and absolutely you give it and you help. But you create a distance that allows their relationship to flourish. And this is what he is saying: a man shall leave, and man and his wife will leave their parents. Second of all, cleave to your spouse. The word cleave means to adhere to like skin adheres to bones, to stick like glue. Look, if you don't intend for your marriage to be forever, till death do us part, please don't get married. This is not a rental situation here. This is a forever kind of situation here. And you are saying, I will love you, I will be your spouse till death do us part. Cleave is the word he uses, an inseparable kind of union. The third thing he says is become one flesh. Becoming one flesh means more than physical. It means an inseparable union emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. It is talking about unity. Two people with different backgrounds and temperaments and habits and scars and feelings and parents and gifts and interests. You're so different. Two people so different coming together to be one flesh. It doesn't happen at the wedding. It doesn't happen the first year or the fifth year. It's a lifelong thing in what one flesh really means. It is a lifelong journey of becoming little by little by little one flesh relationship. Uh, early in our marriage, I think it was the first year that we were married, and we were in a little church, and, and I was pastoring that little church, and one of the older guys in the church said to me, uh, let me just tell you some advice I've learned over the years. He said, you need to think of marriage as sort of two boards rubbing together. And he said, if you imagine two boards rubbing together, it creates friction, and he said, your marriage is going to create friction. And if friction comes, don't worry about that. It's okay. It's supposed to come. You are supposed to experience friction. But he said, here's what happens. When, it exper- when you start experiencing friction, these two boards creating friction, it will create heat. And there will be some hard times that happens. But he said, if you stick with it, here's what's going to happen to you. What happens is, is that you begin to create grooves in others and in the other. And what will happen is, before long, you will fit. This is how two boards come to fit each other. And if you'll stick with it, if you'll be willing to go through the fr- friction and the hard times and the, the difficult moments, if you won't, ju- if you won't uh, uh, give up on your marriage, you will begin to fit together. This is one flesh. This is what it really means. And it is a lifelong process in your life. But you will begin to feel it. You will begin to sense this is happening in my marriage. Look, the greatest 
goal of marriage is to experience mature love in which you experience a level of love you can't experience anywhere else. You, you have a deep love for other people, your parents and other relationships, but the greatest, the greatest level of love is to be your marriage. And that happens over a lifetime of sticking with it. You really learn how to love. You really learn how to love over time. Here's the fourth thing. Reach genuine intimacy. Verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, that's an odd statement if you, if you ask me. You're reading that along, read along, you come to verse 25, and it just sounds odd. That they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. But in the Hebrew language, that word naked is actually a Hebrew word that means laid bare. And here is the idea. To be laid bare means to be totally exposed, totally transparent, emotionally, mentally, all your strengths, all your weaknesses, inward and outward, to be intimate and still not embarrassed. Here's what happens in marriage. In marriage... Over not that long of a time, all the facades begin to fall. You can keep up the facades for a while, but you can't keep it up forever. And all of a sudden, all the weaknesses begin to show. Oh, good grief, I did not know you had those weaknesses. And they all just begin to show that you can't help it. And they, the weaknesses begin to demonstrate themselves. In marriage, you, and what's happening is you're becoming more and more and more real. And over time, what happens in marriage is that you lay bare. You, you begin to show who you really are. And this is where real marriage is beginning. Now, I'm not talking about sinful activity. I'm not talking about that. If, if we're involved in sinful activity, that's got to be repented of and changed. But all of us have weaknesses. We, we all have inabilities in our life. And as time goes by in our marriage, those begin to be laid bare and the other person gets to see who we really are and we get to see who that other person really is in marriage. And and I'm not talking about sinful activity that's got to be repented, but I'm just talking about weaknesses. And the greatest thing that could happen is that you accept your husband. You accept your wife for who they are. You accept each other. You've stopped trying to change him or change her. You've stopped it. First of all, it's never going to happen. You're wasting a lot of years. It's not going to happen. But you come to a place where you say, I accept you warts and all. I accept you for who you are. Can I tell you what the craziest thing is? When you actually accept him and accept her for who they are, I'm not talking about sinful activity that needs to be repented of, but I'm talking about just weaknesses. 
when you begin to accept that person, the craziest thing begins to happen. That person feeling the acceptance actually begins to be open to change himself and herself. When they know the pressure is off, start actually being open to the Holy Spirit changing them. Coming to the place of acceptance is one of the greatest, the greatest and most important parts of marriage. It's when your marriage begins to improve. You really learn to love. Now, there are a couple things that can sabotage what could be a great, great marriage. One of them is the male macho image of never communicating, never opening up, never sharing who you are, what you're about. Actually, that could become tragic. And by the way, it's not just, it's not just the male. It can be the female too, but oftentimes it's the male and and, oh, well, it's the way we men are. But actually, it's not good. It, to be open, to, to share who you are, what you are about, to open yourself up is a good thing. The second one is buying into the movie portrayal of sexuality that can steal your marriage away. I'm talking about pornography. I'm talking about uh, being unfaithful. It can just destroy everything. There's an author who uh, was writing a book, and she, in one of her stories in the book, she said that there was a guy who worked with her husband, and his name is George, and his name is not George. She just called him George, okay? And she said that there was a guy, and she will call him George, and work with my husband, and she said when he got divorced, he just went wild. He just, he was just a sexual mess. And she said what happened is that one day he came to her husband, and sat down in his office and said, could I just talk to you? And, the guy, and his, her husband said yes. And he said, I, I, I know that you've seen how sexually free I am. But he said to her, actually, I'm just so miserable. I'm just so miserable. He said, you have no idea how many times I have gone home and wished there was somebody there wish that my wife was there to greet me and I could hug her and tell her I love you and to go to bed and wake up the next morning knowing she'll be there. And he said, I'm just living a miserable life. And here's what I want to say to you. Don't quit on your marriage. You're going through rough spots. You're going through friction. Don't quit on this. You're just experiencing what everybody else goes through. It is part of the whole process of coming to mature love. Open your heart to be willing to get there. 
Go through this series with us. I'm not saying this series is, is uh, an end all, but Pastor Libin and I, over these four weeks, he's going to preach two of the messages. I'm going to preach two of the messages. And from our own perspectives in life and what the Word of God says, open your heart to the truths we're going to be sharing because this can help you. It's not the end all, but maybe it's, maybe it's the beginning of taking the next step of opening your heart to go through this time. Be willing to open your heart to be willing to experience mature love down the road. Open your heart to it. So here's what I'm going to say. At the end of what I said at the beginning, the greatest gift you could give your spouse is to love God and to put Him first in your life. Because the more you do, the more you open up your heart, the more he begins to change you. You are giving him permission to change you and your marriage from the inside out. Give him that permission. It's a great gift to give to your spouse. So on both campuses, let's stop and pray. Father, we ask, would you move in hearts today? On both campuses, in both worship centers, would you move in our hearts today? Would you move in our marriages today? God, would you open up the opportunity to learn how to accept each other? You don't have to change. To learn how to learn from each other. I want to learn from you. to learn how to obey you, God, in what you say to us about how we can have the greatest marriage and to give it a chance, give it time. It is a lifelong process. It's not an overnight thing. It's okay to have friction. It's the only way we can get to the grooves. God, I pray you would move in hearts on both campuses to say, okay, God, I give you permission to begin changing me. I give you permission to begin to move in our, our marriage to make it what it ought to be. I yield my heart to you. God, I pray that you would move in hearts today to do that very thing. And Father, for some on both campuses, that they need to start a relationship with you. They don't even know you, but they can. And today... They can begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, you'd move in hearts to make that decision on both campuses. And today, that you would move in hearts to say, okay, I'm not a member of Sugar Creek, but this place feels like home, and I want to be. I want to learn here. I want to grow here. And I want to join this church. Father, I pray you would move in hearts to make the next step in their lives on both campuses. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.